Yes, so the first Bible reading, as Mike just said, comes from Isaiah 52, verses 1 to 10, found on page 734 of the Blue Bibles, but also on the screen behind me. Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength, pour on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit, holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up, sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains of your neck, daughter Zion, now captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, And those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And our second Bible reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. Again, in the Blue Bibles, you may find on page 1,126. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he proclaimed beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you who are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today, as um, Mike's uh, already said earlier on, um, we begin a new uh, sermon series on... Um, no, this is uncomfortable. I think I'll come up one more. Sorry. On our Epistle to Romans, and specifically a six-week series on Romans 1-4 to leading up to Easter, and, of course, um, those extraordinary events um, and really world-changing events that happen in Jesus' death and uh, resurrection. In a way, I don't think I could think of a better preparation, really, leading up to um, Easter uh, than to examine these uh, four chapters of Romans. In terms of the history of the church, the letter to the Romans has probably been the most significant in terms of its impact, um, in terms of the whole New Testament. Um, many great church leaders, theologians, bishops, etc., have been profoundly influenced 
um, by the letter to the Romans. And two of the most influential men, I suppose, in church history, um, in the later centuries of church history, were converted simply through reading the letter to the Romans. I refer to the founding father of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Martin Luther, and the founder of the Methodist movement in the 18th century, John Wesley. Regarding Romans, Luther wrote, the epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So there's your homework for this week. Memory of Romans, word for word, by heart, by next week, the whole thing. So I hope that sort of a little burst of church history excites you about the treasures of the gospel of God's salvation that this letter contains. And if you're someone here today who is still weighing up, let's say, the merits of the Christian faith, this is a great series for you to be here. A great opportunity to understand the essence of the good news that uh, God has announced in this letter for all the peoples of the world. I've entitled the um, first seven verses here today, we look at today, and in your outline, which you'll find in your booklet if you haven't already got it, uh, on the screen it'll be as we go as well. What Paul refers to in the very first verse as the gospel of God. Oh yes, good. Now in your outline you'll see that I've split it into three sections that relate to the gospel of God. The first has to do with Paul and his relationship to the gospel. Then the second um, is Paul's explanation of the substance of the gospel. And then thirdly, why the gospel was given by God. That is, the goal of the gospel. But before we get there, um, since this is the first in the series, first at the beginning of Romans, I want to just say a few things by way of introduction. Um, Paul wrote to the Romans on his third missionary journey. I've got a bit of a map here. Ah, now stay there. Okay. Um, There's a fair bit of information on there, but you can read it as you go. The probability is that Paul, on his journey, was in Corinth when he wrote this. So here we are. Is my laser pointer working? No, can't get it either. Well, forget about that. You can see Corinth, the letter A there. That's where Corinth is, in uh, basically Greece. And that's where he was. And we're told in Romans, in chapter 15, that he basically had sort of uh, uh, three plans. Uh, Plan A was that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He'd been collecting money for Jerusalem, so he'd go from A to C, was his first plan that he was going to go. His second plan then was from Jerusalem. He was going to go to Rome. That's what he wanted to do, to visit them. But he had another thing in mind. He wanted to go to Rome because his ultimate goal is plan three. He wanted to go to Spain over in D, if you can uh, see that. That's what he wanted to do. And you'll see that in chapter 15. He tells us that that's how we know there. And um, 
The letter itself, Romans, which he wrote in Corinth, is almost certainly carried by Phoebe. You see that in chapter 16, that's the green dots. She would go to Rome and give him, give them the letter while he took off to um, Jerusalem with some money that he'd been collecting because there was a great uh, famine and stuff in Jerusalem and uh, they needed uh, money for the poor. Um, the church was mainly Gentile in character, um, though it did contain now a significant group of Jews. The Roman Emperor Claudius in uh, 49 AD had issued a decree deporting all Jews from Rome. We're not sure why, but we think it's probably because there was um, a dispute between Jewish and Jewish Christians and traditional Jews over um, the way to interpret the law, and they'd been causing a lot of trouble. And apparently, Claudius said, "Right, we've had enough. You're all out." So, in 49 AD, he uh, threw the Jews out. As a result, the church became almost entirely Gentile. But in 54 AD, five years later, Claudius died and he was succeeded by Nero. Not much better um, there. And Roman emperors, um, their decrees died with them. And so that died. And so what we think happened is that this um, filtering uh, of Jews began to come back to Rome who had actually been deported before and so there was a trickle of Jews now coming back and of course that brought in sort of uh, disputes mainly about how to regard the Jewish law uh, with the Gentiles. It also seems that there was a certain level of arrogance at this stage that had developed by the Gentiles for the Jews, a sort of disdain that had developed over the Jewish Christians because the Jews had largely rec- had um, rejected their own Messiah. So this is sort of the, the background that's in the background of this letter that we see. And because the Jews had come back, this presented a problem for Paul. He'd never been to Rome. He wanted to preach to got the gospel in Spain and he wanted to seek the assistance of the Roman church and support of them for that journey. He needed their backing if that was going to be a success and they could send him on their way. Because Paul had not been there, he was also uncertain of his reputation in Rome. Between Jews, traditional Jews and that sort of thing, all sorts of rumours floating around about what Paul actually thought. Was he orthodox? Was he not? Was he a rebel? Was he... he wasn't sure of his reputation. Um, rumours had been floating around that were both positive and negative. So what was Paul to do? Well, he decided to state the gospel uh, in the clearest way, the truth of God's plan of salvation, the place of both Jews and Gentiles within it and the nature of Christian living. In order, it seems, first to unify the church around the truth of the gospel and then second, that unity to form a platform for ministry to Spain. Now, we will see time and time again in these four chapters um, how this sort of stuff is borne out in Paul's explanation of the gospel of God. So now we return to the components of the passage in your outline as um, 
as they relate to the Gospel of God. And first of all, we have the first one I've called Paul and the Gospel. Read verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the Gospel of God. Now, letters in the ancient world would normally um, begin with the name of the person, who they were to, the addressees, and then there was some form of greeting. All those elements are present here in the first seven verses. Paul is the sender, but you don't get the addressees until verse 7, you see, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, and that's followed by his greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is unusual. Paul fills out information in the middle. If you have a look at some of his other letters, he'll, all three will just occur in the first uh, couple of verses. So Paul expands his own introduction to include information, you see, about the truth of the gospel. He preaches. It's probably the most theologically rich of all the openings to Paul's letters in the New Testament. And he begins by designating himself a slave and an apostle of Jesus. Now I know uh, the text says a servant. Um, the word literally is slave and I think servant's probably a bit weak in the way we think of the word servant, not so much the way they might have, but the way we think of servant. He really is a slave of Jesus here. And these two, slave and apostle, are really two opposites. See, slave is a term of humility. It expresses a sense of personal insignificance with no rights belonging to him. He's belonging entirely to one who had purchased him, that is Jesus Christ. The other term, however, apostle, is a term of authority, dignity and privilege because this occurs by the calling and appointment to this authority by Christ. Slave is a general term. It could be used of every Christian believer, friends. We're all, if you're a believer here today, you really are a slave of Jesus. That's the way you ought to see yourself. Apostle, on the other hand, is a special title that was given by Jesus for a particular purpose. And Paul describes that purpose here as being set apart for the gospel of God. The way I've put it, set apart um, for gospel service to all the Gentiles. And that's because I'm looking forward a bit to verses 5 and 6 where he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now, of course, by this um, service to all the Gentiles, Paul doesn't mean that he did not, uh, that he was only interested in Gentiles. He didn't preach the gospel to the Jews. His practice clearly shows otherwise. When Paul was in a town, the first thing he did was go to the Jewish synagogue. That's where he started to preach the gospel. Often they threw him out, and so then he went to the Gentiles. But he started with the Jews. And just a bit further on, in chapter 1, verse 16, uh, which Mike's looking at next week, he says that the gospel he preaches brings salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. 
No, by stating um, as a Jewish Christian himself that he was an apostle to all the Gentiles, Paul afflictively is stating that the gospel is universal, that the gospel is for all peoples. And for us today, engaged, engaged in God's mission to the world, the same is true. As one writer puts it, we too, if we are committed to world mission, will have to be liberated from all pride of race, nation, tribe, caste, class, and acknowledge that God's gospel is for everybody, without exception and without distinction. This is the major theme of Romans. So Paul is both slave and apostle, set apart, called to preach the gospel to all. And this gospel and good news he brings is not something of his own invention. It's just the opposite. It's a gospel which brings to fulfilment all of God's promises long ago in the Old Testament. Verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Gospel of Paul, he was an apostle not of a novelty, or as we might say today, of a fad. Rather, what he was announcing was simply the continuance and bringing to fulfilment what God had promised to Israel many centuries before through his prophets. Although that word prophets is probably shorthand for the Old Testament as a whole. Jesus himself said that the old te- that the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, bore witness to him. And in the early preaching of the gospel, recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, the apostles continually pointed back to the Old Testament and its fulfilment in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus as the completion of Jewish hope and the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises. That passage we read from Isaiah 52 this morning is one passage that's leading in that direction that will go on to Isaiah 53, a great passage talking about Jesus' death and forgiveness of sin that he brought. I want you to notice that Paul refers to the prophets as his prophets. Notice that. You see, their message came from God and the communication method to the whole world was the Holy Scriptures. What a wonderful thing. that God has preserved his gospel in written form for us, for all people, for all generations, that we might see the plan of God from beginning to end. Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul now gets to the heart of what he wants to convey. And that's the substance of the gospel. In verse 3 he says, so it's in the Holy Scripture, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and through whom and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now in the simplest terms, Paul begins by simply saying that God's gospel is all about Jesus. In fact, in verse 9, he will refer to the gospel as the gospel of his son as well, because it's really both. It comes from God, it's about Jesus. You could call it the gospel of his son as well. In other words, God's son is the centre of the gospel. Everything 
about the good news of God must be understood in relation to Jesus. There's nothing outside of it. To quote John Calvin, the greatest theologian of the Protestant Reformation, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. Therefore, to move even a step from Christ Jesus is to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Friends, the Christian faith is exclusive. There is no getting away from that. It's exclusive of all other religions, all other faiths, all other philosophies. It's not arrogance or pride, as some accuse Christian believers. It's the testimony of God himself, his son, Jesus, and the apostles he appointed. So the apostle Peter stated so clearly in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And you know, when you think about it for a moment, you realise it has to be that way. For only Jesus' death and resurrection, only by that is God able to solve the basic flaw in humankind. Our rebellion against our creator and a life deeply out of step with his holiness. Only in Jesus has God found a way, as that song we heard earlier said, to be just in terms of punishing sin and at the same time to be loving and merciful to us, you and me, offering forgiveness of sins and new life through his Holy Spirit. Well, what is it then that Paul sees as the most important things to know about the Son? Two things, he says, that basically represent, I think, the two phases of Jesus' life. First, Jesus is the promised Davidic Messiah King in his earthly life. That's verse 3. Who was, as to his earthly life, a descendant of David. Now, at first sight, the words descendant of David may seem no more than a confirmation of Jesus' humanity. But the title, son or descendant of David, was universally recognised as messianic. It went way back to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, which said, When your days are over, speaking to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This promise of God was then picked up in the Psalms and the prophets and later in the New Testament. Typical, for instance, is Acts 13.23 when Paul is preaching in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch. He says, from this man's descendants, referring to David, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. Jesus then in his earthly life is the promised Messiah in David's line who would save his people and establish an an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that would go on forever. 
How would that come about? How would a human being bring about an eternal kingdom? Well, the key, of course, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because at his resurrection from the dead, God appointed him. The second piece of information in verse 4, the powerful son of God in the new age of the spirit. That's what verse 4 says. And through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now to say he was appointed in no way means that Jesus was not God's son before his resurrection. Some have tried to say that, but uh, I don't think uh, that can be sustained. I mean, basically, because at the beginning of verse 3, Paul says the gospel is about his son, which governs the whole of verses 3 and 4, and clearly assumes that Jesus is always God's son. Rather, at his resurrection, Jesus was declared or appointed or designated son of God in power. That is the powerful Son of God who would be enthroned in heaven as God's now eternal King, completing those Old Testament promises back in 2 Samuel uh, long ago of an eternal King, a kingdom forever. Now this came, Paul says, through the spirit of holiness, which is a, a, a sort of a difficult phrase for us to understand and interpret because we don't find it elsewhere. Notice though that it sits in parallel with as to his earthly life. In verse 3, who as to his earthly life, that's in parallel with verse 4, and through the spirit of holiness. They parallel each other. It's likely therefore that verse 3 refers to Jesus' life on earth, phase 1, if you like, of his kingly messiahship, and verse 4 to phase 2, that is Jesus' post-resurrection appointment as the powerful son of God and eternal Messiah King. When Paul talks about phase two coming through the spirit of holiness, I think he means therefore that Jesus' appointment as the powerful Son of God comes through the Spirit of God and begins the new age of the Spirit, whereby the powerful Son of God becomes the dispenser of the Holy Spirit upon believers. And that will only be completed Uh, at the second coming of Jesus when he returns to take his people with him forever. Now, just in case you're finding some of this a little difficult to take in, Paul wonderfully just sums up what he's just said at the end of verse 4 in just four words. Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Jesus, a human man, God's Messiah and Saviour, Christ, I mean, Jesus the human, Christ, God's Messiah and Saviour, our Lord and Lord of the universe. Now imagine one of your friends or a neighbour, a work colleague, etc., who knew you were a Christian um, and wanted to know a little more, asked you what this Christian stuff was all about. What would you say? Well, of course, there are many things that could legitimately be said. But I think if Paul was living today and speaking in our culture, he would first of all simply answer by saying, 
It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's what these things that we've been promoting, things like the Word, one-to-one, these resources where you can read the Bible with people, get them to read it, and um, this is one on John's Gospel and a series on John's Gospel, are so uh, useful. Because what you're doing is letting people read all about Jesus and who he really is. The good news, you see, friends, has nothing to do with any sort of philosophy. You know, you read in the papers all sorts of things. Any sort of program, any sort of lifestyle, it's about a person. The person of God's Son. It's about throwing your lot in with him, becoming his follower, becoming his slave. In these four chapters, Paul will fill out why um, what Jesus has done is such good news. And that brings us finally to the third section of this opening passage, which I've called the goal of the gospel. See, Jesus' death and incarnation and resurrection served a purpose. It was really a means to an end, not an end in itself. And that end is stated succinctly in the second half of verse 5, where Paul says um, he was an apostle of all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. See, Paul was called to be an apostle by God's grace in order to bring about the obedience That comes from faith. Now ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, humankind had been set on a course of rebellion against God, the God who created them. The result is the created world has become deeply flawed. As Paul puts it in chapter 8, it groans for the day when God will judge the world and set things straight. So God put in place a rescue plan, beginning with Abraham and then the nation of Israel, from which the promised Messiah Jesus would come to provide forgiveness of sins by his grace and gift alone through faith and turn rebellion into obedience through his Holy Spirit. God's rescue plan had to bring about change, not just forgiveness. If we're to enjoy an eternal future with a holy and pure God, we must change and be like him. Faith is tied inextricably to obedience. If if there's no obedience, friends, there's no faith. Let me say that again. If there's no obedience, there is no faith. And I think this is possibly the clearest verse in the New Testament that binds the two together. We must be careful, however, to say that Paul, what Paul means by obedience here is not so much perfection as allegiance and direction. The obedience that comes from faith right now is a life that turns from rebellion and self-interest to follow God's Son, to align my life with him to his, to seek to live the way he wants me to. Faith without faith, without change, is no faith at all. 
or to use the well-known words of James, faith without works is dead faith. And one day when Jesus returns to judge the world and set it right, the process begun in each one of us will be completed and we will be made perfect and see him face to face. What a day that will be. And yet there is still a more ultimate goal for the gospel of God. One that again has to do with the Son. The obedience that comes from faith ultimately is designed by God for the honour of Jesus' name. Note at the end of verse 5, obedience that comes from faith is said to be for his, that is Jesus' name's sake. The ultimate and supreme end of God's plan of salvation, God's gospel good news, is the honour and glory of his son. The one who left his majesty in heaven to become a human being, to be the human Messiah in the line of David, to die on a cross in our place, but rise again to be enthroned forever as God's powerful son, the eternal Messiah and King. Philippians chapter 2 states, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that the name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only God's people do that now. But one day, Every person will. Well, to sum up, what is the gospel of God? His good news to the world on about? It's all about his son, Jesus. To what end? To bring about the obedience that comes from faith, but even more, to bring about the honour of his son's name. Let me conclude from one of the great evangelical theologians of the 20th century, a quote from John Stott, who says, If therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, that Paul's going to talk about in Romans 1, but rather zeal. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us pray, friends, that it may be true here at Grove and be the fundamental desire that governs each of our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for these opening words of Paul in the letter to the Romans. We thank you for 
especially your son. And the wonderful good news that comes through him. We thank you that he was willing to come and enter our human history to fulfil your promises in the Old Testament and then to die and rise so that we might be forgiven and also rise to eternal life with him. We pray, Lord, that as we live each day, this process of becoming more and more like you, the obedience that comes from faith, that you would empower us more and more through your spirit to do so. But above all, we pray that we would always hold uh, the honour of Jesus' name uh, to be our greatest desire. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.